0: One, when a pastor gets up and preaches, they have to preach to the whole congregation. I think the challenge is, how do we preach to both people who are new in the faith, who are mature in the faith, who may be old in the faith and young in the faith? I think one great thing that happens when we gather together as a family is we discuss the word of God. We have conversations. Okay, what did you get from that? Did you understand that? And so that's what I want to challenge everyone to do, Um, not just hear the word, but how can we continue to eat off this word the rest of the week? And so the title of today's sermon is hard work doesn't pay off, which may be a little um, discouraging or counterintuitive to what you may believe about life. But there are three questions that I am asking and answering in today's sermon. I want to challenge everyone to ask themselves and also answer, maybe even talk about the first one is how do we get in right standing before God? And we'll talk about that. The second one is, how do we receive this gift? And then the third is, who receives this gift? How do we get in right standing with God? How do we receive this gift? And who receives this gift? And so I'm excited to jump back into the word of God this week. As you've noticed, as we have been going through Romans, there is a bit of a trajectory, right? There's a story that's being told. Paul is essentially writing in a line Almost like a person who is traveling from one destination to another. And so I realize sometimes when we discuss things like this, like the nature of our salvation, some of us may wonder, why is that important for me if I'm already saved? But I like to think about it like this. When I used to work at the bank, the worst day was when we had an internal audit. That meant that we were going to audit ourselves and see if we understood the procedures that were in place, all the reasons for those procedures. And so when we preach and hear sermons about salvation, our faith, that is us doing an internal audit. Do we understand the nature of our faith? And so we can see here that the hidden thing that we have seen so far all over this book is that we are not saved because of how hard we work. We are not saved because we are good people. And even with that, even though we may consciously know that, I think all of us would be lying if we said we are not quite tempted to still want to work hard or climb our way up the ladder of spirituality. But that just is not how salvation works. That's not how growth in Christ works. Just like we mentioned last week, God is not rewarding his Favorite people. And he is also not rewarding those who are outworking everyone else. If that were the case, then most people would just major in doing stuff as long as they could be favored by God. And so I realize that when I say hard work doesn't pay off in terms of society, it is a corollary truth that the harder you work, the better off you'll be. You'll be rewarded, you'll make good money. But what I want you to learn is in God's economy, that's just not how it works. And so we're going to be looking today at Romans, the end of Romans chapter three, verse 20. And then we're going to go into Romans chapter four. So we're starting in Romans chapter three in the 20th verse and we're going all the way to verse nine in chapter four. And Paul writes this, he says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by his works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after. But before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let's pray. Lord, as we prepare to get into the word, as we prepare to really wrestle with some complex things, some difficult objectives to understand, God. Help us understand. Help us have clarity on these things. Help us know how to grow from this, God. Um, It is a challenge to not want to lean and depend on ourselves. But, God, those of us who are saved are not saved because of ourselves. We are saved because of you. And, God, for those of us who may be in this room who are not saved, we will not be saved because of ourselves. We will only be saved because of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the main objectives that I have in this sermon is to say something, y'all, that is extremely complex, but to try to say it in the most simple way possible. And so in order to do that, I think that beginning by telling you that I will be answering these three questions will help you keep track of what this sermon is about. And so I propose to you again the first question of this sermon. How do we get in right standing with God? How do we get in right standing with God? To answer this, Paul actually begins by saying not how we get in right standing with God. He actually says this is how you don't get in right standing with God. In verse 20 of chapter 3, he says that no one will be justified by the works of the law. So we need to not skip over this word. I think every now and again we hear words and we throw phrases out and assume people understand. But what does the word justified mean? That word means to be placed in right standing, to be declared righteous. Now, remember, we said last week that we are not born in right standing with God. We are born out of right standing with God. So the question is, how do we get in right standing? And Paul answers it here. He says that we are declared right before God through having faith in Jesus. Now, it's important that you know that to be justified does not mean that you are made righteous, but you are declared righteous. Now, you probably think, Brandon, that's just semantics, and there's no significance to that. But this is actually really important for us to grasp. A criminal once confessed to a burglary, and he fully intended to plead guilty before a judge. He showed up to his predetermined court date And the judge says to him, Sir, while I know that you intend on entering a guilty plea because you are in fact guilty, it is my intention to acquit you of this crime. Now let's think about this. Did this man commit a crime? Yes. Was this man guilty? Yes. But he was treated as if he were innocent. That is what it means to be declared righteous. We are guilty of the sins held to our account, but we are treated as if we are innocent. Y'all, that's beautiful. He who knew no sin became sin so that we who could never know righteousness would become the righteousness of God. That means that to be declared righteous by God is to be treated as if you are not guilty. And his whole point, Paul's whole point here, is that if you are putting your faith in obedience to the law, in obedience to good works, the law could never do that. The law could never declare you right before God. At best, the law only reveals sin, but the law can't make you free from Sin. And this is what makes Christianity so complicated for people to wrap their heads and hearts around. Y'all, the law was not given to man to be the means for man to be right before God any more than obedience to our earthly laws makes us right before the police. I dare any of you to go into a police department and ask them, where's the record of my obedience? They won't have one. Because just like the law, our earthly laws don't keep a record of your obedience. What do they keep a record of? Your disobedience. If you go into the police station, if they have a file on you, that file is not to say, here is how you are in right standing. That file is to say, you have violated these laws. In the same way, the law for us, though good, has no power to put us in right standing before God just like driving a speed limit does not put you in right standing before the authorities. It prevents you from getting in trouble, but that prevention comes from your adherence to that law. All our natural laws do is set a guard against us from breaking them. They do not change our standing. And in the same way, the law sets that guard for us. But in a similar way, the law itself is a record, not of our obedience. The law is a record of our disobedience. And that goes for the law. But I I want you to understand this. The law itself is good. God's moral law is good. There is nothing wrong with the law. It reveals sin, not in itself, but in us. Paul says, I wouldn't have known sin if it wasn't for the law revealing sin in me. And I read that I should not covet, and it arises all sorts of covetousness in me. He says the problem, though, is not with the law. The problem is with me. The problem is with me. When I know that there's a speed limit and I don't search it out, the problem is not with the limit of speed problem is with me. I want to violate it. And it's just a record for us. So how do we get in right standing with God? Well, it begins by not getting in right standing with the law, but getting in right standing with the one who gives the law, and that's God. How do we get in right standing with him? Well, we receive the gift that is given to us. Notice, if we work all the way back from the beginning of Romans till now, all that we have learned, look at all the people that Paul has condemned. First, he says that those who deny that there is a God, those who want to live according to their deeds and their wisdom and their own way of working, those who know there is a God but suppress that truth, those people are condemned. So first, he starts outside. But then now he's moved inside. He says, but those who think that they are made righteous by the law, they're condemned as well. He says that whether you are outside or whether you are inside, if your righteousness does not come from Jesus, you are condemned. He says, for there is no distinction here. All have sinned. And not just that all have sinned, but it is that all have sinned and all fall short of God's glory. Now, I know all of us know that text. Let me tell you why we know that text. We know that scripture because we've used it either to excuse ourselves of sin or to accuse somebody else of sin. Baby, we all fall short. I can't help it. We all fall short. Well, you know, we all fall short, don't we? We all fall short. Now, many of us may have used it in that way, but I probably don't think we have thought about what Paul is actually communicating here. He says that we are so comprehensively lost, we are so far away from God that we all work ourselves away from God's glory, and we all fall short of it. But in reading that text, have you ever thought about But what is God's glory when it says that we all fall short of it? That's one of like we've heard it. But what actually is the glory of God that we are falling short of? And I think we need to think about that. We can't skip over that. Whenever we look in the Old Testament, the glory of God is God coming down. Right. Right. So you see him coming down, whether that is God coming down in the glory cloud, whether that is God revealing himself to Moses. Whenever we see God coming down, that is the glory of God. His glory comes down to us. So if in the Old Testament it is God's glory coming down to us, then in the New Testament we again see the glory of God come down to us. But now the glory of God has come down to us in the form of Jesus, the man, and of his glory, y'all, we all fall short. How do I know that that's referring to the glory that is in Jesus? Well, Hebrews 1 and 3 says that, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and he is the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Y'all, Jesus is all the glory of God clothed in human flesh, having been perfectly sinless. He is both the just and the justifier of all who believe. And of his righteous standard, we all fall short. We all fall short. And we can consider Jesus and his righteousness like we consider a mirror. The further we stand away from the image of Christ, the more we look like him. But the closer we get as we are growing in our walk with Christ, as we are being sanctified in our walk with Christ, we are taking proverbial steps closer to Christ. And the closer we get to him, the more we realize how short we actually fall of him. So the first question, how do we get in right standing with God, it is through faith in Jesus Christ. The second question is, how do we we receive this gift? This is what the text says. It says, and we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a big word propitiation by his blood to be received by faith we receive this gift not on a matter of working hard, but believing by faith. People say all the time that they don't know that they have to believe by faith or they don't understand why they need to believe by faith. But I want you to think about how many things in your life you rely on by faith. Every one of you, I'm assuming, Laid in your bed last night, by faith, expecting that bed to hold you up. Every one of you is sitting on a pew. You don't know how rickety or rocky they may be, but by faith, what did you do? You sat down. Every one of us goes to work, and by faith, we expect every two weeks to be paid. Every one of us who got here probably put our key in the ignition and expected by faith, God was going to crank up and do what we needed to do. What we learn is we are a by faith people. We put our faith in a number of things every single day. So the fact that to be saved, we have to put our faith in Jesus is not foreign to us. And when it comes to our standing in Christ, it is a matter of faith. And to firm this point up, Paul brings up what many would have called the father of faith, Abraham. And he knew how many of his readers would have felt about Abraham. He was their father of faith as well. And they may have, well, gradually reasoned in their hearts that the reason that they were righteous was because of their circumcision. That is no different than if you ask a person, how do you know you're a Christian? They say, because I got baptized. Just like circumcision does not make you right before God, neither does baptism make you right before God. And they moved from thinking that they were the only people who were righteous, but all of the people, regardless of ethnicity, needed the physical act of circumcision to justify themselves back to God. And they would have all got this from when God told Abraham to circumcise all the boys at eight days old, being the reason that he was declared righteous. But I want you to notice what Paul's point here is in the text. He says, actually, it's the opposite. He said that before, before Abraham did anything regarding circumcision, before he did any works, God declared him right. And why? He said, because Abraham believed God. And just in case you don't think God has been giving us the gospel from Genesis all the way until now, it says, it does not say he believed God and he was righteous. It doesn't say that. It says he believed God and it was counted to him. As righteousness. It was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham wasn't righteous, but he is treated as righteous because he had faith in God. How are we made right before God? It is because we have faith in him, we believe in him. God's righteousness was treated as if it were Abraham's righteousness. And that means that we can look back in Genesis and see that the roots of the gospel have not changed. And that is so that none of us has any reason to have any pride. No one can say, I did it. I worked hard. I gave more. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. No, nobody in this room who is actually who is actually saved can say that they are saved because of anything that they did. We are here and it is all of the grace of God. And Paul says that if we were saved by works, then Jesus is obligated to respond to our good works. By dying on the cross, no different than your boss is obligated to pay for the work that you do. If that's the case, then salvation is what we deserved and not a gift. But salvation is a gift. And so the question is not do you believe that God exists, but do you believe that the death and the resurrection of Christ will give you life? Is his resurrection sufficient for you? Like when you lay down in that bed, believing it will hold you up, do you believe that putting your life in the hands of Christ, that he will be able to hold it all together? That's what takes faith. Knowing that if he has the reins of my life in his hands, then my life will not crash and burn. Finally, Question three. Who receives this gift? Who receives this gift? Probably not who we think receives it. He says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Last week, we talked about who can be saved, and we landed that anyone from any race, any economic position can be saved. But y'all, what is the kind of person that God actually saves? Who does he declare righteous? I remember being a kid. This is one of those things that I couldn't quite understand because as far as I knew, all the folks that I knew were Christians had always been Christians. As far as I knew, all the people who believed had always believed. As far as I knew, all the folks who were living in their current life didn't have a former life. They came out saved. But let's think about the critical issue with that. Who does Paul say that God declares righteous here? He doesn't say, and him who declares the godly righteous. He says, God who justifies the ungodly. Wait a minute. You mean to tell me in order to be made in right standing with God, I got to be in wrong standing with him to begin with? (laughs) What a miracle. The only people who can be made godly have the prerequisite of being un, ungodly. He declares the ungodly righteous before him. Y'all, this is important because many of us in our attempts to witness and draw people to Christ, even as Christians, is yet when you get yourself clean, when you get yourself together, when you get yourself right, then you can come to church. That's not how it works. Oh, you are ungodly. You are unsaved. You are unrighteous. I have good news for you. You are in the right condition to be saved. That's it. We are not bashing people over the heads for being ungodly because guess what we were? The only way I can say that I'm a godly man is that at some point in my life, there's a line of ungodly that is real, that is raw, that is who I was. It is about ungodly and unrighteous people. This is the gospel. It is about people who don't know the Lord being rescued from their sins. And by the way, the scripture does not say Blessed is the man who does not sin. Get that out your head. It does not say blessed in the man. Blessed is the man who is sinless, who is perfect. That's not what it says. What does it say? He says, blessed is the man whose sins are covered. Whose lawless deeds are forgiven whose sins are not counted. Y'all, the only prerequisite required for you to be saved, as crazy as it may sound, is sin. What do you need to be saved? You need sin. And every one of us has sin. And there is not enough working we can do to get ourselves out of it. I like the way 1 John puts it in reference to our own sin. First John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, though, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Here, John essentially says that pretending to be sinless actually makes a liar out of God. What does the scriptures say? My old church, Mother Taylor, used to say every Wednesday, every Tuesday and Sunday, let God be true and every man a liar. And that is the case here. If we say I am sinless, then you don't just make a lie out of yourself, but you make a lie out of God. But let me go one step further. Maybe you don't say I'm sinless, but maybe you live as if you're sinless. Maybe you are holding up this porcelain image of your life that people from the outside think, man, they must got it all together. They must have it all right. When you even try to pretend as if you have no sin, you make a liar out of God. But look at what it says here. The expectation is not that you will be sinless, but the expectation is for all of us who know the Lord, who have sinned, that we are confessing those sins up to him. And what does he do? Not only has he forgiven us, but he is cleansing us as well, which means, yes, I sin, but he can make it where I sin less than I did before. And that's all we can hope for. You're not going to be perfect. You're not going to be sinless, but your pursuit of Christ has a remarkable way of making sin fall off of you. Who receives this gift? It is those of us who don't know the Lord. Jesus himself said that he did not come to seek out those who were well. He came to save those who are sick. And if you are well, if you are working hard on your own, and if you are successfully Evading sin without Jesus, then you don't have you don't need a savior. You have a savior. And it's you. That's why understanding the gospel is so much more about us understanding our own lostness. It's like this. The more I come in contact with the risen savior. The more I just want to be like him. And we realize that, as we mentioned before, if we all fall short of his glory, the beautiful part is that Jesus, by his grace, though we fall short, is drawing us near to himself. We fall short, but he is still drawing us to himself. And this is always the question that people are left with after I talk to them about the gospel in this way. They always say, like you see in the Bible, but what can I do? After hearing the gospel, what did almost everybody say? What can we do to be saved? Peter's instruction, repent and believe. But it's a little bit of a paradox because without Jesus, you can't repent and believe. You must have faith in Christ. So what can you do to save yourself? Nothing. There is nothing that you can do. There is nothing more that you can do to contribute to your salvation than what Christ has already done. And if you think that there is anything else that needs to be added in order for you to be saved, then you are saying that the works of Christ were not enough, but mine will be. So what does all this mean for us in this room who are in right relationship with God? What does that mean for those of us who understand how we are saved? Let this be a reminder for the believers in the room. For you not to think that in your relationship with God, that your efforts are going to bring you closer to him than your heart. Y'all, it is a lot of times where I want to be seen as noble by God because I preach true sermons. There are lots of times where I want to be seen as noble to God because I'm faithful in my marriage and I take care of my kids and I go to work faithfully and I do all the things that I need to do. But sometimes in that, I want to lean so much more on the stuff I do that my heart is not being drawn to Him. Because even for me, I can get up here and preach every Sunday. I can do all that stuff. But if my heart doesn't love the one that I say I'm doing it for, it's for nothing. And so I'm saying for all of us in this room, we can at times think, well, I'm a good wife. I'm a good husband, a good mother, good father, good worker, good friend, good daughter, good son, good this, good that. But is your heart devoted to Christ? He does not want from us a lip service, nor does he want hollowed out deeds. Jesus wants a heart devoted to himself that freely acknowledges his grace and out of a deep burning love for him also serves him faithfully. Is that you? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word. God, we thank you for the challenge of the word. God, ultimately what we all need is a self-awareness. Those of us who know you, those of us who may be in this room who do not know you, we all need a self-awareness of where we are standing with you. God um, works, and the desire to be pleasing through our good deeds and through our habits and through everything that we do, it can creep up on us. That the only times that we pray are in public, the only times that we read our Bibles are here, the only times that we have a conversation about you is when people want to talk about you, God. And it it is easy for us to just think, well, that makes me good, that makes me right, that makes me noble. And those things are not bad things, God, but those things without a relationship with you, they mean nothing. God, there may be people in this room, or there may be people who know people in this room who are struggling, trying to merit goodness on their own, trying to swim themselves out of this sea of sin. But God, as we learned last week, unless you are the lifesaver that pulls us out. At best, we can only tread water. God, there is nothing we can do to save ourselves, but our hope, our faith, our trust must be placed in you. Help us see that. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.